The Secret World Chronicle, a podcast novel series written by Mercedes Lackey, Cody Martin, Dennis Lee, and Veronica Jaguer. Presenting Season 8, Collision. Start Shooting, Part 1. Written by Mercedes Lackey and Cody Martin. Red Savior lit up a cigarette and scowled as it went out. She knew better than to try again. That nickel-turny meta that Echo kept around to prevent her from smoking in the building was hard at work. All he could do was detect and extinguish very small fires within a limited range, mere sparks or coals, really. If she ever found out which room they kept that person in, she'd have choice words to share with him. Foiled of her ability to chain smoke, she yanked open the door to Bella Parker's office, brushing past the receptionist and reaching for the door to the inner office with every intent to slam it open. But she was foiled in that, as well, as the door slid smoothly open at her approach. This did not improve her temper. Nor did the fact that Parker finished whatever she was reading and signed it, before looking up. Commissar, so pleased you could drop in she said dryly. You know the door is always open to you. And you, blue girl. Too busy being petty bureaucrat with desk and papers as of late. I see more of motherland here every day. Her attempt to administer unto the head of Echo an equal amount of the irritation she had received since entering the doors was met with yet more frustration. Why, Commissar, I thought that Soviet bureaucracy was the height of modern efficiency, Bella drawled. And actually, what I just finished signing was that requisition form for the CCCP. More of those incendiary shells your people designed and we are manufacturing. I took the liberty of doubling what you asked for because as soon as we find the location of the Thulian HQ, I've always thought that too much ammunition is never enough. Natalia sighed, pinching the bridge of her nose as she wished hard for a cigarette right then. Da, da, fine is good. But you bring matter to table, finding the base of operations for fascista. What efforts are being made? Now Bella dropped the pretense of serenity and allowed Savior to see the strain on her face. Every effort... The problem is we have conflicting evidence for locations, and every damn one of them is even more inaccessible than the North American HQ was. The only place we haven't got a loc indicator for is, ironically enough, Siberia. Either you sturdy Ruskies have always been damned good at keeping them out, or they were never there in the first place. She sighed. We're trying to find them with satellites and spy planes, but so far, no joy. Why are you not sending physical scouting parties? Savior demanded. One, Bella retorted, holding up a finger. We don't have the personnel. If we send conventional troops, that means letting the country in question know we're wanting to go snooping, and that means a high potential for leaks. We can't send metas because we don't have enough. Two, she held up a second finger. Even if we could send metas, what happens if they just stumble into the HQ, then we've got an unholy mess on our hands and who knows what the Thulians would do. No, our only option is to do this slowly and carefully, and I know it seems unduly cautious, but that is what all my advisors are telling me. Advisors, Natalia scoffed. 
unduly is not the word I would be using. Suicidally would be more fitting. She spread her arms wide, exasperated. Every moment we waste with overcaution is another moment enemy is having to plan, to attack, to kill. Is what they do, these Kriegers. Is all they do. We must be killing them first, and only way to do that is to devote resources to be finding them. Echo is devoting resources to finding them, Bella retorted. Just not boots on the ground. She visibly throttled down anger. Look, we know this is an HQ. We know it has to be big. Something that big leaves signs. Even if they are disguising it somehow, stuff has to enter and leave. The place needs to generate power. There are going to be telltales. We just haven't found the right ones to look for yet. Signs and telltales you cannot find and have not been able to find after all of this time. The commissar shook her head. The fascista must have counted on all governments of world hunting for them. Their technology is advanced, more so than almost anything known to us. So you are thinking that spy planes and satellites which they laugh at are being answered? You were never fighter before invasion, Sestra, nor part of law enforcement. When you have quarry who shuns places where there are being computers to track him, you do not keep typing into Gaggle browser to find him. You send men to places where he might be and have them extract information for whomever they find there until you have quarry. Which means you increase your chances for a leak by a hundredfold, Bella snapped. Not to mention that you'll be sending thugs to beat up perfectly innocent people in the mere hope of finding something. That'll go over well in the press she added sarcastically. Natalia snorted. You are too soft. Press, world is close to being cinder. Would rather be vilified and alive than dead and well-liked by newsmen who hate us Ruskies anyway. Let them print what they want. Results count, not opinion of soft bodies that quiver in fear and unwilling to fight for themselves. Enough bad press and Echo gets shut down. We've come damn close to that already, Bella said darkly and shook her head. No, it's got to be done this way. It's not just spy satellite photos. They have to be getting supplies from somewhere. Those supplies have to be moved somehow. They can't act in a vacuum. We... Enough. Natalia was fed up. This was becoming circular. Didn't her friend see that one couldn't count on anything from the Thulians? Not that there must be some sign that there must be anything from them. They either came from out of nowhere on the day of the invasion, which all evidence so far contradicted, or they had been here all along, behind the scenes, waiting and preparing. If over the course of sixty years they hadn't been detected as the world had shrunk due to the advance of technology and commerce, what would half-measures accomplish? They had leads— Many contradicted each other. Some of the intelligence gathered was fresher than other pieces. But every day they wasted in not acting, the greater the chance that the information they had would become even more dated, even more useless. That is one thing the healer didn't, maybe couldn't understand. When you have stomach for what is needing doing, you know where we are. Without another word, the commissar turned on her heel and stormed out of the room, 
door swishing closed behind her. Natalia chain-smoked in silence for the entire drive back to CCCP HQ. The more she thought about her exchange with Bella, the more furious she became. Caution. Always caution. Never action. When had the blue girl turned into such a coward? When they made her echo hid, Savior decided sourly. That should have been the moment when she seized the reins and made it clear that she was the one in charge, and it was not some democratic nonsense with advisors. Too much plotting and scheming and setting up pieces quietly. It was unbecoming. It reminded Natalia too much of the machinations of politicians and bureaucrats back home in Russia. In war, you were either advancing or you were not. Their enemy had declared the entirety of Earth as the battlefield— so they had no option but to advance, to push the invaders out. And to do that, they had to find the heart of the beast and kill it. Few nations seemed to be doing much of anything, at least openly. With the devastation of the initial invasion and the destruction from the almost impossible-to-predict pop-ups, most were comfortable with maintaining the status quo. Let Echo handle it was the general response to attacks. Reconstruction was the word of the day. The militaries and police forces would put down individual attacks, almost always in support of the metahumans of Echo. But it was largely viewed as someone else's problem. Everywhere she looked, it seemed that people were being ruled by their fear. If they took a moment to acknowledge it, it would destroy everything they had built up around themselves, all of their mental and emotional armor. She had heard stories from her father and Boryets, even Unter once, about the Great Patriotic War, and how some people became hysterical, shutting out all reality when they couldn't cope. Natalia felt as if the entire world were in the grips of such hysteria, and she was in the minority of the sane. All of it enraged her, and yet stiffened her resolve. Mamona was her driver for this trip. She sat quietly, guiding the motor pool van back to HQ through the maze of blocked streets and detours. That was just as well. Natalia's temper was liable to be taken out on the first thing that presented itself. She had to throttle herself just to keep from snapping at Mamona. If it had been Untermensch who was driving, she would have lashed out anyway. He was used to being her verbal whipping boy and thought no more of her outbursts than he would the wind blowing a swirl of leaves into his face. But there was no telling how Mamona would react, and Natalia did not want to alienate a useful comrade. The American unlike her Russians, could always hand in a resignation and go to Echo. So she kept her temper barely in check all the way back to CCCP HQ, bit off an efficient driving comrade to the American, and stalked back to her office. Word spread quickly when she was in a temper, even more quickly now that CCCP had its own version of Overwatch Mark I. Everyone kept out of her path, and she was free to storm through the halls to her office without interference. The satisfying slam of the metal door behind her released, briefly, a very little bit of her anger. But then she sank down into the battered chair behind her desk and ran both hands through her hair with a tense exhalation of breath. She sat there for what seemed even to her like a very long time, breathing and thinking. Enough waiting, she said aloud into the silence of the room. Overwatch, 
open Garion. I'm beginning to think I like witch better than blue girl, she thought sourly. At least witch does not sit about twiddling fingers. Da, commissar, came the prompt reply. Status of Molotok and Undermensch. Report. Undermensch is returned from patrol, commissar, said the CCCP comm officer. Molotok is inspecting machine shop. Molotok, who was as much of a brother to her as a comrade, was only recently returned to the USA. As their official liaison to the main branch of the CCCP back in Russia, he often spent the majority of his time there helping the transition with the Supernaut Corps that were to be the primary defense for the motherland. She missed him, though she would never say as much, and thought that he would be better put to use here in Atlanta. Such things were out of her control, for now at least. Alert both to come to my office, she said shortly. She knew Moji would be there quickly. He always came quickly when she asked for him. The two of them had almost been like brother and sister. Both of them were second-generation metahumans and Soviet heroes. Both of them had been trained by Boryets and looked on workers' champions as a second father. They had been born within a year of each other, and as children had called each other brat and sestra. And as for Untermensch, well, Georgie was always reliable. Her sturdy right hand as often as not. She was not disappointed. The firm knock on the door was followed by the door opening before she could say the word, enter. Unter was first, brusque as ever in entering the room and finding his place within it. His once dark hair and mustache had both gone salt and pepper at the edges this last year. Seeing as how he had fought in the Great Patriotic War, he should have looked a great deal older than the fit, early forty-year-old that he appeared to be. Once positioned, he stood at a sort of loose attention, awaiting Natalia's prompt. Casually, Molotov strolled in, half grinning like the cat who had just caught the mouse. He had strong Russian features. His face was severe, but not so much that he wasn't extremely handsome. Stark black hair, like Natalia's, and carefree eyes, not like Natalia's. He leaned against the wall next to the doorframe, his arms crossed in front of his chest. Here we are, Sestra. What do you need? Natalia motioned with her chin towards the door. Close it, Brett. Molotov reached out a long arm and closed the door. Quietly. The latch made scarcely a sound as it engaged. Overwatch. Call Victorix. Are you there, daughter of Rasputin? At your service, Commissar. The reply came over Natalia's link and Natalia's alone. Moji cocked his head to one side. Unter nodded but lifted an eyebrow. Horosho, uh, please to add Moji and Untermensch. She waited while Vicky complied. I have just come from meeting with Head of Echo concerning finding the next Krieger HQ. I would like if all of you took time to listen to it. Roger, playing back meeting recording now. Moji and Unter were silent as the recording played over Unter's implant and Moji's headset. Viggy switched to Russian. This'll be easier on all of us if we use the mother tongue, Commissar. I... 
I don't often disagree with Bells, but this time I do. You're right. You need boots on the ground. I have tried every damn detection method for this base that I have in my extensive arsenal. And yes, I used magic too. I've got nothing. These guys are... Well, good doesn't begin to describe it. I'm in, and I'll keep Echo out of the loop. Her tone turned dry. Fortunately, you of the CCCP do not have to answer to Echo, or the U.S. government. Good. Natalia had switched over to speaking Russian as well. It will be much easier than trying to deceive you and only have you go running to tell Belladonna. She looked at her two comrades in turn. I propose that we begin sending reconnaissance teams out with the express purpose of uncovering the Krieger HQ. Spy planes and satellite imagery are all well and good. I will use every tool at my disposal in this war. But it is hard to do detective work 30,000 feet above the ground. We need our people out there. We should have them out there already. Suggestion, Commissar. Yes, speak. You have possession of the Tesla Quantator, and you are authorized to use it. Go excoriate Tesla, Marconi, or both. They might just cough up information to you that they are withholding from Echo. We sent them bucket loads of intel I pulled off the Fulian computers, and we've gotten dribbles back. I think they might be holding out on us. Or... Well, you know how they are about only sending us what they are certain of. Rather than holding out on us, maybe all they have is maybe the base is here or here or here. Methinks maybes are enough to start a hunt right now. This was turning out better than she had expected. If they hadn't had Vicky working with them, the series of operations that Natalia was planning on undertaking would have been much more difficult, almost impossible to conceal potentially. With her, especially with her overwatch system, things would run much more smoothly. Once I have spoken with Tesla and Marconi, we will begin to draw up the general framework for these missions. I will need both of you to leverage your personnel, and, she said, looking at Moji, any influence you may have in the motherland still. We will be conducting covert operations, likely on foreign soil, and this is not apt to make us popular. She grinned wolfishly. I'm giving this op a code name so you can get my attention in a heartbeat. I'm coding Overwatch for it now. Just say Red Star and nothing else, and you'll have my ears and help in seconds, even if I'm asleep. It'll give me a priority alert and a direct feed. Good. Do any of you have questions before I talk to the ghosts of two dead men? Molotov stepped forward, holding up a finger. Just one. When we find these bastards and line them up against the wall, can I be the first to start shooting? The transport plane that John, Sarah, Untermensch, and Molotov were flying on was nothing short of a death trap. It was some variant of the Antonov AN-12. Originally produced in 1959, this thing looked like it had to have been one of the first ones off the assembly line. It was so ancient. 
the cramped storage hold barely had enough room for the team to wedge themselves into sitting positions. The rest of the space was filled with various crates and boxes, and, incongruously, a brand-new BMW. Besides the seating conditions, the plane itself was hardly what anyone could consider airworthy. Various fluids leaked from seals and pipes. The interior lights had a tendency to flicker for seemingly inscrutable reasons, and John swore that he saw what looked like a Russian stop sign sloppily welded over a hole in the deck. Not to mention the multiple empty bottles of alcohol that served as glass tumbleweeds, rolling around between the crates. Darling, remind me to book first class next time. Flying coaches for suckers. Sarah smiled at him. That smile warmed him deep inside and somehow calmed him at the same time. Perhaps we could sit in the automobile? Molotov leaned over, grinning. Would not advise to be doing that, Dorogoy. Gypsy bastard flying this tub would likely shoot or crash plane. He glanced around, looking at the plane. On second thoughts, he may be doing that anyway. Sarah turned her intensely blue eyes on the Russian. In that case, would you care to take the chance after all? Molotov settled back in his seat, shrugging. John had only had a brief look at their pilot. Disheveled, furrowed face, slightly grayish complexion, clothing that looked as if he had slept in it for the past month, scraggly stubble, and the stink of cheap vodka, body odor, and engine grease completed the picture. He had gotten part of the story about the pilot from Unter before takeoff. His name was Vadim Baruskov. A notorious drunk, he had been kicked out of Russia's Air Force before he had graduated from the academy. He quickly fell in with gangsters and eventually parlayed his meager flight skills into a semi-successful smuggling and gun-running operation. That is, until the commissar caught him. Apparently, he had ratted out all of his close associates for a reduced sentence and had somehow managed to survive prison in spite of being a rat. John suspected that the commissar might have had something to do with that, but he and Unter could only speculate. In any case, the man was smuggling them into India to check on one of the leads that Natalia had convinced Tesla and Marconi to cough up. This was their second such mission together for that purpose. Several other CCCP teams had already been similarly dispatched. All done covertly, away from the prying eyes of Echo, save for Victrix. John agreed with the move, for the most part. They had to go after the Kriegers. To do that, you needed intelligence. And to get intelligence, you needed boots on the ground, going out to gather it. Besides the infiltration he had done on the mission silo and what they had been able to steal from the Thulean North American HQ, there seemingly had not been any dedicated operations to obtain crucial intel on the Kriegers. For the most part, they were taking down pop-up cells or putting down random attacks— Never mind the bullshit they were still dealing with from Verdigree and his splinter group of Black Snake. He didn't know what Bella and Echo were doing to find the next Krieger HQ, but it obviously either wasn't enough or wasn't working. J.M., deploy one of my eyeballs, will you? I want to be able to warn you if that miserable excuse for an airplane is about to go south and auger in. 
Yes, dear. John reached into one of his hip pouches, producing one of the techno-magical eyes. It hovered from his palm and then zipped away, weaving through the cargo compartment. Save the endearments for your wife. Which reminds me, when exactly did you two actually get hitched? Inquiring minds want to know. No real ceremony. Didn't need one. I'll tell you all about it when we get back. Sarah rested a hand on John's forearm. Despite the world going to hell screaming, John felt happy. He could tell that she felt it, too. It was something else he was starting to pick up from their connection. He could feel her emotions, even her thoughts. They both still worried about the war, how to fight the Kriegers, the safety of their friends and the hood. But there was a bit more peace that the two of them created within each other. There was a connection between them now, at a deep, deep level, that they had only begun to explore. There were implications to that connection they were just beginning to see. And under everything was a new constant, part of the unbreakable bond that they had forged between them. Music. Faintly, but ever-present, that whisper of music that had nearly driven him to distraction when he'd first heard it. They both heard it now, and it was part of them both— Sarah called it the song, and now he knew what it was, and he knew now why being walled away from it had caused her such unbearable pain. Being able to hear it again, though it was a mere breath of what it must once have been for her, put a light in her eyes once more. Knowing what it was, and being able to hear it, well, was healing to his spirit in a way he had never expected to experience. You four want the good news or the bad news? This in Russian presumably being heard by the entire contingent. John was the first to speak up. You know me. Let's have the bad news. This heap is not getting off the ground again. Between the altitude and the cascading failures, she's going to need an overhaul before she can fly again. So you better count on someone else for your ride out. Good news is, even though she's likely to blow a couple tires on landing and spring some more hydraulic leaks, she'll make it to the airstrip. Note, I said airstrip, not airport. We're talking barely combed gravel. Better find some padding for those excuses for seats or your spines are going to end up driven through your skulls. Your optimism is always being appreciated, Tovarich. John thought that Unter had been asleep. He guessed that the Russian was merely resting his eyes, listening and aware of everything. He was the team leader for this operation. John also suspected he was there to keep an eye on Sarah and himself. Their return had raised quite a few eyebrows in both the CCCP and Echo. Both of them had been prodded and tested and analyzed until they were completely cleared, body and mind. Still, they were an unknown quantity again— until they proved that they could hold it together once more. I live to serve, and you are going into approach vector, so better find that padding in a hurry. Hunter, you haven't got enough on that ass to cushion you through a good landing, much less the one you're about to get. J.M., you better find some padding, too. Your brain isn't going to be able to handle that much bouncing. Roger that. Speak to you on the ground, one way or another. John had been through worse rides in his life, though not worse landings. 
The plane had been airborne more often than it had had its wheels on the ground, at least until it came to a rattling, shrieking, screeching halt. The four of them had been out of the plane as soon as the cargo door was open. Probably the same thing had been on all their minds, though Vix hadn't mentioned it. What if this wreck catches fire? That the pilot had stumbled out of the cockpit, urging them to more speed in a slurred Russian dialect hadn't done anything to disabuse John of that thought. The airstrip was barely passable as that. Just a single shack and a battered windsock flopping limply on a pole denoted that planes were meant to be there at all. A group of locals were lounging around, drinking and smoking, until they finally jumped up and ran over to help with the unloading. There was an equally battered, abused, and beaten-up Land Rover, which had to have been built in the 1960s, waiting for them. The pilot stood beside his plane supervising the offloading of far more crates than that vehicle should have been able to hold, drinking from an unlabeled bottle. Once the cargo was off, which didn't take long, he clambered back into it, closed the hatch, and turned the plane around. And, to Vix's voluble astonishment, made it back into the sky. Molotov just laughed at her. Russian ingenuity, Tovarish. If it can be held together with bailing wire and drunken hope, it will fly. The four of them crammed themselves and their packs into the two bench seats in the rover, which was not easy, since the packs included two purloined jetpacks for the two Russians, who couldn't fly on their own. By the time the luggage had been piled in around them, John was buried and couldn't see anything but a sliver outside the filthy window on his side. The locals piled the boxes on top of the vehicle, secured them with enough rope to scale Everest with, and then the team was off. The rover dropped them, their gear, and the cargo they had hitched a ride with off in a little Indian village. The cargo vanished almost as soon as it hit the ground. They were met by a villainous-looking fellow who could have stepped out of a B-movie featuring Himalayan bandits, but who, surprisingly, turned out to have tolerable Russian and be quite personable. He had organized a string of ponies that Unter regarded dubiously, and which all the men looked, well, ridiculous on. Sarah perched on hers as if she had always been a rider. Moji and Unter looked awkward as hell. John felt awkward at first, but then he caught Sarah's gaze for just a moment. The music strengthened within him for about thirty seconds, and his body began to adjust without him thinking about it. And in a few moments, he was sitting in the saddle as easily as Sarah, even if he did feel a little like a grown man on a kid's tricycle. But the ponies were a lot stronger than they looked, and their guide, who only gave them his first name, Jagat, turned out to have been a polo player, who certainly knew how to pick his mounts. Jagat got them as far into the mountains as he would let the ponies go, which was a lot farther than John had expected. Then he helped them unload their gear. This is where I leave you, my friends, he said as Moji paid him in gold. When you come back out, use your satellite phone and call me. I will bring the ponies up to get you. If you don't come back out, I will pray for your next incarnation. It wouldn't be a sat phone that called him, of course. It would be Vix. But he wouldn't know that. Spoofing a phone was less than trivial for her. The next leg of the journey would require something more 
exotic in order to get the team around. The jetpacks were conversion models that ran on something like a power cell. Mad scientist stuff, literally. It was one of the latest things to come out of Tesla and Marconi, because Vix had had some words with them. Seems she hadn't fancied dropping out of the Atlantis sky if there was need to turn the power broadcasters off. And speaking of Vix... Overwatch, command. Open Vix, John said as Moji helped Hunter into his jetpack. Vix here. I read you five by five. There was a yawn. Of course, it was the middle of the night in Atlanta. System recalibrating. Your maps should be updated with your position now. Vix had installed one of the last of her internal sets on Moji just before they left. Now John heard him utter a low whistle. Boz moi, he exclaimed. If this is magic doing, little witch, I am very much liking it. I live to serve, Vix replied. You didn't have time to read the manual, so I'm just repeating to your set whatever J.M. calls up on his. If you rather, I keyed to Georgie. Yet Murdoch will be a hockey. Target is being twenty kilometers, roughly, and mostly up. Ah, that puts it in that big valley just the other side of those mountains. Very much of nothing all around it. Watch those jetpacks. I'm not sure they're going to have sufficient oxygen to operate once you start climbing. And don't forget to wear your oxy-concentrator masks. John and I won't need them, Sarah said serenely, and exchanged another look with John. Once again, he heard the song strengthen and fill him, and then felt something adjusting, this time inside him, and where a moment before he had been straining to get breaths, now he was breathing as easily as a Sherpa. Huh. I'll take your word for it. Moji and Hunter, however, make sure you have your concentrators on. Yes, little mother, Moji said with amusement, but put on the mask anyway. Sarah spread her wings wide and was the first into the air. Untermensch was the second. John relaxed and concentrated at the same time, then began to run. When he'd reached what he felt was the right speed, he pushed off, and that rocket-like fire erupted from his feet and lower legs. He still had no idea how he was doing that, but it felt damned good. He had invested in a pair of goggles since his last attempt at flying— Polarized, the wind and sun didn't bother him now. In a moment, he had caught up to Sarah, and they flew under the bright Himalayan sun, side by side. You have been listening to Collision, Season 8 of the Secret World Chronicle podcast novel series. Season 8 is written by Mercedes Lackey, Cody Martin, Dennis Lee, and Veronica Jaguer. Music is Exciting Trailer by Kevin McLeod from Incompetech.com. The Secret World Chronicle podcast is narrated and produced by Veronica Jaguer and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 4.0 International License. 
The fourth book, Collision, is available in print and ebook in December 2014 from the amazing people at Bayon Books. For more information about the series or to listen to earlier seasons, check out www.secretworldchronicle.com. Want to chat with the authors and fellow SWC fans? Join the Secret World Chronicle group on Facebook. And as always, thank you for listening.